Hello? Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? My keyboard. You're typing? Well, I'm getting ready to listen to a podcast. Do you like podcasts about scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite podcast about scary movies? Um, now playing. You know, the one hosted by Stuart, Arnie, and Marjorie who watch and review all movies in a series? Is that the one that's now reviewing the entire Scream movie series? Yeah, with the ghost face killer. I haven't seen that movie. The podcast has spoilers and harsh language, so you should watch the movie before you listen. Okay. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. Today we're talking about Scream, starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, and Drew Barrymore, directed by Wes Craven, our friend. Ah! This is Arnie, co-host of Now Play. Stuart in LA. This is Marjorie. So, Stu, are you going to kill us later in this podcast? <laughs> you know what? I've got a beef with this movie, and it has nothing to do with the movie itself. It's just that it perpetuates the negative stereotypes of Stewarts. I have never <laughs> seen a well-balanced Stewart. They're either nerdy, social outcasts, or they're psychopaths, or killers, or sometimes both. Stuart, you got nothing on Arnie's of the world, okay? Need I say <laughs> Gilbert Grape? <laughs> Perhaps that's why we're friends. We just we come together in, in solitude against this stereotype Hollywood has projected of our names. You know, I guess Stuart Little is the close. But again, it's like, I'm a rat. This is my hero. Uh, uh, yes. Yet another stew. We'll get into it, I guess. So we are discussing Scream, the 1996 horror film, because finally Scream 4 is coming around. Everybody's egos are back in check. They all realize their movie careers aren't what they thought they were going to be around the time of Scream 3. That's the rule, right? When you watch up and no one will hire you. Okay, the sequel is yeah, you're right. I do think it's time for a new one, Nev. <laughs> we are definitely going to talk about that when we get to Scream 3. I think it's unavoidable to discuss it. <laughs> but here, they were all a bunch of TV people or nobodies. I always like this. I always think it's fun to when they meant a whole bunch of people that you see again. And you go back and you're like, oh, they were all in the same movie. It's funny to see all these people and none of them stars yet. So I first saw Scream when it was in theaters. I am coming to this podcast as the fan of Scream, but I wasn't when it came out. I saw it actually the very last night it was playing in theaters. A couple of friends of mine and I decided, ah, we'd heard some good things. I didn't see it when it came out because I really just wasn't a fan of Wes Craven. I got to say between Wes Craven's New Nightmare, The People Under the Stairs, Shocker. I just was like, yeah, I don't want to see any more of what this guy has to offer. I actually saw Vampire in Brooklyn, and I think that was enough to turn me off the man forever. I skipped Scream till the very last night, and then I saw it, and I'm like, wow, that's really good. And I became a big fan of the series, owned the box set. I am rewatching it for the series for the first time, though, since Scream 3 came out. I guess I'm coming to the series a little bit of the skeptic. I was won over, but at this time, I think it's important to remember that horror and general was kind of in the crapper in 1996 when scream came out and slasher movies hit rock bottom and and my love for them had all gone away at that point i had moved on i didn't want to see horror movies anymore i had gone through that phase i had been in it when it was 
big in the 80s. And by this point in 96, I thought how embarrassing to go see a Wes Craven movie. I just <laughs> I didn't want to like it. But when I finally caught up with the original on video, I was surprised at how much I did enjoy it. But I think I saw the sequels. I don't remember them. This will be the first time that I'll actually be giving them my full attention, I think. Anybody that's heard the Nightmare on Elm Street podcast knows I'm quite skeptical of what Wes Craven can do, but I'm willing to give anybody a chance, given that this is so beloved. Let's see if it holds up 14 years later. I've never seen this movie before watching it for this podcast. I vaguely remember seeing a trailer for it and thinking it was something I wouldn't enjoy. It just didn't look like a good horror movie to me at the time. And I know Arnie was a big fan. He had the box set and he watched it alone. Yes. Because I had no interest in seeing these movies. I'm a huge horror fan. I love horror movies. But this just seemed like it was like the 90s version of a horror movie. And it was hip because it was like the Party of Five horror movie. That's what it made me think of. So I did waste my time. And you're not wrong in Nev Campbell being in both. Marjorie, that surprises me because I do feel like this was the one in the 90s out of all of the horror that did come out. This was the one horror movie you did have to see. But I know what you mean. It's like, what is this about? You come to this and you don't even know. Yeah, I mean, you saw a lot of the films that this movie caused to happen, like Halloween H2O. But I think we'll talk more about this film's legacy at the end of this show. Arnie, why don't you give us a plot summary, catch people up, remind them if they haven't seen, it's hard to imagine anybody listening to this <laughs> podcast and wanting to anticipate what we have to say and not knowing the plot, but give them a refresher course. Tell them the rules. The movie takes place in the small rural town of Woodsboro, set obviously in California, where a serial killer in a white ghost face mask and a black robe is calling local teens, tormenting them with horror movie trivia on the phone before killing them. The film starts with the murder of two teens, Casey, played by Drew Barrymore, and her boyfriend Steve. We get to see the local high school react to these two deaths, in particular one group of friends, which includes video store nerd Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy, surfer dude Stu, played by Matthew Lillard, Stu's girlfriend Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, Stu's brooding best friend Billy, Skeet Ulrich, and our main character, Billy's girlfriend, Sydney Preston, played by Nev Campbell. Sydney is our stereotypical horror virgin, unable to be intimate with Billy as she's still reeling from her mother's murder one year prior. Her mother had been having an affair with Cotton Weary, played in a very brief scene by Leif Schreiber. One night after a tryst, Sydney's mother was murdered and Sydney was the eyewitness who saw someone in Cotton's coat leaving the scene. She testified against Cotton, who is now on death row, but the recent murders and a few crank calls have instilled doubt in Sydney's mind if perhaps the recent rash of killings is done by the same murderer who killed her mother. Adding to Sydney's doubts is tabloid TV reporter Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox. Gail had covered the death of Sydney's mom, continually advocating Cotton's innocence in the press, and is now publishing a book about the murder to build her own fame. She's back in Woodsboro covering the new slate of murders and romancing young Deputy Dewey, played by David Arquette, who gives Gail access to both police information as well as to the teens themselves, as Dewey is Tatum's older brother still living at home with his sister. When Sydney is attacked in her home, she blames boyfriend Billy after he is discovered to own a cell phone. <laughs> they were kind of rare in 96. I didn't have one. <laughs> I I'm sorry, Arnie. It was a cellular. It was not a cell phone. The whole movie they refer to it as a cellular. But with Billy in lockup, the calls and murders continue, and we're left wondering who our killer is, with a number of suspects, including the Fonz himself, Henry Winkler, playing high school principal Hembry, and a number of teens who are running around the school in the same ghost face outfit due to the murders. Billy is released, the town suspends classes, and a curfew is imposed, leading Stu to have an impromptu party at his house. Most of the guests leave due to the curfew, and when it's announced 
dust. Principal Hembry's body was found strung up on the football field. The others leave to witness the carnage, leaving Ghostface to attack the few remaining characters, knocking suspects off one by one. Meanwhile, upstairs at the party, Sydney and Billy make up, and Sydney finally has sex with him. But shortly after their relationship is consummated, the killer enters and stabs Billy, leading to our final chase. Deputy Dewey is stabbed in the back. Gail's cameraman has his throat slit. Sydney locks herself alone in the house. When it turns out Billy is not dead, his stabbing was staged. And there's not one killer, but two. Billy was the brains behind the operation with lapdog Stu as his accomplice. Their first kill was Sydney's mother, who'd been sleeping with Billy's father and caused his mother to leave. Now at the one-year anniversary, the two continued the murders, killing Casey, who had recently dumped Stu, and the other teens with the intent of ending by killing Sydney and framing her father for the murders. Billy and Stu stab each other so they'll have an alibi, and then try to kill Sydney when they're interrupted by Gail, who isn't dead. Sydney escapes, she kills Stu by pushing a TV, playing the movie Halloween, on his head, and then tries to trap Billy, but he overpowers her. But before he can kill her, Gail shoots him. And as Gail reports with a new camera crew that the killers have been found, we see Deputy Dewey survived being loaded into an ambulance as credits roll. So that's the basic plot, and I apologize for it being so long. It's kind of an intricate one, and we'll go through it. Before we talk about the movie itself, let's talk about the title, Scream. Or its original version, Scary Movie. I mean, I think everyone knows at this point, that was the script that Kevin Williamson turned in. I don't know when Scary Movie became Scream. It was the Weinsteins who enforced it. They started the movie under the title scary movie they got everybody signed on and then just as production was starting the weinstein said no we're gonna call it scream and everybody's like ah we hate scream we don't like scream and then of course it comes out as a huge hit and everybody's like yes we love scream as the title now (laughs) and then the weinsteins make scary movie as well and they have two franchises for one we're not covering scary movie no (laughs) no matter how much you donate i'll be the newbie that's for sure i've never (laughs) seen anything about them but let's stick to scream for right now The movie starts with a scene that has become pretty celebrated in horror history. Drew Barrymore alone in the house watching a video and getting the phone calls. This is a terrific opening sequence. No matter what you think of the movie, I think you got to give real props to how well contained and suspenseful and funny. I mean, how well it strikes the balance between horror and comedy that maybe the rest of the movie doesn't always hit. This It's pitch perfect. And I also love the fact that it's just exactly how when a stranger calls in the late 70s with Carol Kane, they're honoring something old and doing something new with it. I think it works well as a standalone movie and a great intro to this world. I actually was lacking the suspense in that scene for some reason. I really didn't feel suspenseful. I didn't get the terror in it. I did get the humor in it. There was a little bit of humor, but it just wasn't scary for me. Or Like some of the other movies were like, oh my God, they're never going to get like in Halloween when Lori's in the house with the two kids and Michael Myers is in there and they're trying to hide and everything. That was suspenseful. This, I was just like, okay, so it's a phone. Big deal. I didn't find it all that scary for some reason. I love this scene and I think it is really scary the way it builds up and it is the perfect opening to a horror film to get you into it. You know, you're coming in and this is kind of an ironic horror film and if you've seen any of the trailers, you know you're going to have Jamie Kennedy giving a speech about the rules of horror films and all of this is coming and so 
to start off with Drew Barrymore, and let's talk about Drew for a minute. At this point in her career, I don't think she was the Drew Barrymore she had been or would become. Three <laughs> years before this, she was doing the Amy Fisher story for crying out loud. This was her big comeback. It was. She was known to me as the little girl from E.T. who then went on to do a lot of drugs and had the horrible Hollywood story and made the cover of People magazine. And she is your prototypical Hollywood kid gone bad. And from that point, she did bit parts. Maybe some people have strong love for Poison Ivy, her slasher movie <laughs> with Sarah Gilbert from the early 90s. But for the most part, I don't think she had another movie of note other than E.T. on her resume. In Scream, I remember this being her thing, and it was like a cameo. And I'm like, really? Drew Barrymore is cameoing? I, I didn't think her star power in 96 was such to earn her that kind of a title. But sure enough, this did bring her back, Wedding Singer, two years after, and now she's a huge star and producer. I mean, she still was an icon. It was She was still, I think, a big get for Scream to, to be the first victim in a Wes Craven slasher movie. That couldn't have sounded good in 1995 when you hear that that's what they want you to do. But she was bigger than that. I mean, I would have thought <laughs> she didn't need that kind of nonsense. As her agent, I would have told or don't do it, Drew. But she got it. Props to her. She understood that everyone in the generation they were targeting this knew who she was and she was famous, you know, maybe infamous, and that if she did a killer bit for 10 minutes in this, she would be remembered forever for it. What I think so much fun about watching Drew in this is that when she first gets the phone call, she plays along. You know, these days, people get a call from someone they don't know, they don't even answer it. And if they do, the bitch guard goes up real fast. But here, I love how she's willing to go back and forth with someone she doesn't even know. We have to like her instantly because there's not much time to get to know her, and we do. She's flirtatious, she's cute, she's the best she probably had been since E.T. at this moment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I felt bad when it started to turn. I felt bad that I knew what was coming and she did. I thought that was good. I didn't think the voice was scary, and maybe that's it. I just didn't feel it was a menacing voice. You know what I like about this scene is I will agree with Marjorie that it wasn't scary per se. What I think about this scene is it's intense. The way it ratchets up. I mean, the movie starts literally with a scream. It's a, you know, you don't know what scream. It's just a scream. Maybe it's Sydney's mother a year earlier. Who knows? And the phone rings and you start off and it's just this little, like, almost a sketch that you'd see in a Twilight Zone episode or something or one of those TV shows. But the way it builds and builds and the way they use the music and the way they gut Steve and his intestines steving. Okay, but hold up. I thought the violence was really downplayed. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's it's a suspense as opposed to gore. I mean, I love the way that this is directed. And yes, I just said that about Wes Craven's <laughs> movie. I love the way that it starts off. Information is slowly being conveyed to us at just the right moment. She gets the call. What are you going to watch? Just some scary movie. And she leans on the counter and we see knives. And suddenly we get just from visual references in the movie. We know what it's going to be. The way the Jiffy Pop starts to over pop and then smoke and then burn like all all of that is building. It, I really feel like this script and this director really know how to keep turning it up. 
It's honestly the best directing work I've ever seen out of Craven. Never have I seen a film done by him so tight and so well filmed. I'm wondering if the DP on this was just phenomenal as well, aiding Craven. And maybe it also helps that Craven's not working off his own material. Maybe Craven's weakness is as a writer. Yeah. When he finally calls her Blondie, when he finally says, so I can know who I'm looking at, I think that's a turning point. That's the moment when Carol Kane gets the call and says... Did you check the children? I mean, suddenly we're aware that something larger is about to happen, that she is not just getting a bad phone call, that there is an imminent threat. And there are a lot of windows in this house. That's another thing that I love, that you feel her vulnerability because there are so many different places a killer could be here. She should not throw stones. <laughs> it's a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And we finally get that information when she's outside the house. We see cornfields. And I'm just thinking the police will not get there in time. She really is going to have to figure this out on her own and will the trivia save her that's i think another thing that's kind of fun is that this killer is presenting an opportunity for her to get away if she knows the rules of horror movies but maybe i didn't find it suspenseful or scary because in the back of my head i knew what was going to happen because if you get a phone call in a horror movie and you're all alone in a house you know the person's going to know what you're wearing or that you have blonde hair or they're going to be in the house. Oh, sure. It feels like a campfire tale. It feels like something a bunch of people would tell each other to scare each other. But that's what I love about it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here with palm sweating going, oh, my God, Drew, get out of the house. <laughs> I, I, I know she's going to get it, but that's the best kind of horror. At this phase, as someone that's seen a bunch of them, it's quite something to make me know what I'm getting, know how it's going to be and still be like, what is going to happen next? how they're going to take advantage of the phone calls. They get the knock on the door, and then we see her big, tough boyfriend, who we think she's just making up to scare them away. No, he's real, and worse, he is duct-taped to a chair outside, and if she goes out to him, they'll kill them both. And I like that it just has this sense of menace right off the bat. I mean, Steve dies. We barely get to know him or even see him before he's gutted. How did they get him? Do we know in any of the bonus material? Did they say? No, they didn't. And I've had the same question at first. For the longest time, I thought there was like the killer was behind the chair sticking the knife through him or something. Mm -hmm. But when I watched it this time, what happens is she's forced to turn off the porch light. And then when she gets the question wrong, you hear the slicing noise and like the oozing of innards and then she turns the lights back on and his innards are still flowing out from the cut okay so they were just really quick about it yeah they were quick and then ran off and the brutality though in so many of these movies when the killer finally comes it's not quite so prolonged it's either a very quick death or something here they throw the chair through the window that was a good jump i actually jumped watching that this time and then when he finally starts stabbing Drew, I mean, he stabs her in the arm and she still runs. And then he stabs her in the side of the neck and she still runs. It's in slow-mo. It really is like, yeah, it's just they're drawing it out. It's kind of hard to watch in a way. Yeah, that's what I'm saying about the intensity of it. And honestly, because it's Drew Barrymore, you think she's the first person you're seeing. Nine-tenths of the time in horror movies, the first person you're introduced to is your main character, especially when it's your biggest star. She's on the poster, right? I mean, the hand over the face, that's her, right? Yeah. So they're trying to make us think that she's going to be the one to go to the end with this killer. And you see the parents coming home. You really think she might make it. She's going to be a little fucked up, but she might make it. No, she's going to be gutted hanging from a tree. 
I think the most twisted touch of this whole suspense thing is when the parents come home and realize that an intruder is there. The mom goes to pick up the phone. You remember that it's not a cell phone this girl is on. She's on a cordless phone. Remember those? This is a house <laughs> line. And so the mom can actually hear her as she's being dragged away and dying and know that somewhere in the near vicinity within cord phone receptability, her daughter is suffering. And so they go to the car and that's when they see it. How soon I have forgotten what it's like to have a home phone. <laughs> this movie is all kinds of retro. The fact that she was going to watch a VHS for that night, it just it does remind you times have changed. It's been a while since Scream was made. But, man, I love it. I love the way that the parents are brought in. They find out that there's something wrong. You think it'll end there, and then they go to the car. What a great last image to end on. I mean, it's, it's a killer. This is a killer opening. Now, we did get to see the killer early on in this, and I wasn't impressed. <laughs> he seemed kind of clumsy. Actually, that's one of the things I love about this movie as it goes on. He takes a beating, doesn't he? Yeah, in every scene. He's not Jason. He's not Freddy. He's a guy who you could possibly stop, but he keeps on coming. This movie is a horror comedy, and some of the comedy is pure slapstick during these attacks. I also think that he knows he's being watched. He's giving an exaggerated performance. We see him running around looking for her, but the truth of the matter is he knows exactly where she is. He's trying to convey to her that he doesn't know where she is. And I love the final question she has to answer after she flubs who's the killer in Friday the 13th. And after she's gotten to this point, we know because if we've seen it, the movie before, there's no way she can get the right answer to the last trivia and escape. Which door am I at? Am I in the front or the back? Well, one of them's in one and one of them's in another. Yeah, one's play acting inside the house while the other one is outside with her waiting to do what they need to. The one problem with the Scream series is it doesn't have a good killer name. I mean, he's referred to as Ghostface. I mean, you get Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers. These are all iconic names, and eventually they'd go on to be the title of most of the franchises. Here, it's the guy in the white mask that literally, this was not done by the makeup department. This was a mask that you could buy every Halloween anyway, and they just got it right off the rack. Okay, this is the second Halloween thing we see in this movie where the killer is wearing just a Halloween costume. Halloween did it better, which, you know, that's a series that's near and dear to my heart. Because they took a William Shatner mask and they made it scary. Whoever thought Shatner could be as scary as he was when Michael Myers was wearing him in the first one? And it was that weird, like, expressionless, no eyebrow. Here, this is just something that some idiot wears on Halloween Kind of looks like Edward Munch. Well, yeah. I mean, not kind of. That's funny. That's a joke. That's the screen, the painting. You know, they, they know that. I just didn't find it scary. No, it's not scary. Okay. It's not. And it, it is by no means frightening. It is comical. And I think Scary Movie really has the best thing where they like put the tongue on it as doing the old dated uh, what's up joke with it. And it's not a scary mask. But that said, the frightening thing is his brutality, I think. The way that they use the parents really, I think, ups it from anything that I had seen before. Like parents don't exist in horror movies. The teens are in trouble. The parents are never there to bring the parents home and to have them be so close and then to actually more or less see their daughter being gutted before them that's quite a twisted take on it and it really sets you up it's pretty cool setup it definitely sets the tone 
It kind of does, but then it just kind of pisses it away. Perhaps if we were 20 years younger, it would have been suspenseful for us. I am really glad to see your completely new opinion to this because I do wonder, because so much of this has dated so rapidly, I felt just as weird watching this movie from 1996 as I did when we were watching some of the 70s Halloween films and other 70s films we've watched with the dated fashion and everything because it was so of the moment. And I think that life has changed more more in the past 15 years of my life than it did in the 20 before that because of the internet and because of cell phones and everything. I absolutely agree. Now, see, I think this movie had a very modern look to it and a modern feel that was betrayed by the giant cordless phone. But during the opening scene, I was sitting there thinking, why didn't she just pick up her cell phone? Because, because they didn't have exactly, them. Exactly. But I had trouble with that at first. And in fact, this movie really helped popularize even having caller ID in the house. It said that after this movie came out, caller ID use tripled in the US. So even in 96, caller ID was not in Where did you home. get that fact? So you're saying that AT&T benefited from the Scream series? Yeah. I can believe that. This movie was big. I mean, horror movies at that point, I wouldn't to just remind you the same year this came out halloween 6 came out two years before it was new nightmare and jason was hopping bodies and going to hell i mean all those franchises they were in the ghetto there was nothing going on honestly as a horror fan as someone who was writing college papers on horror at this point I thought we were witnessing the death of horror. I thought horror would no longer go to theaters. Scream saved horror. You have to realize a hit, a blockbuster horror movie of that time pulled in about $15 million. 20 total. Not opening weekend. Like, if you got 20 out of Halloween, you did a good Halloween. Scream made nearly, if not over, $100 million. I did see Halloween 6 in theaters, to be honest. Was it even in theaters? <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. And you got to give props to in this scene. They're giving total props to Halloween. Oh, absolutely. When she says Halloween and pulls out the giant butcher knife and pushes it back in. Foreshadowing or an homage. There's a lot of Halloween references in this movie. All the way to the end, really. We'll yes. get there. I think I would be indignant if this movie was ironic and pretending that it was inventing all of this. But it knows that Halloween started it all. It is honoring its forebearers and it is paving a way for new horror. Yeah, the audience for this is aware of what has come before, and this is a film that has characters as smart as the audience, as aware as the audience, and basically having lived the same life as the audience, where even if they didn't watch every Halloween film, even if they weren't into horror, well, they have a friend who's Randy, and he did, and he's going to talk about them incessantly. Yeah, I agree with you. Eventually, every generation relearns their history and relearns where everything came from. You're right. The people that went into screen into the movie theater, they had no idea what these other horror movies were. But it made them inspired. It made them go look. It made them, if they wanted to see more, it was going to be another year before Scream 2, they had to go back and watch these things on video. And truthfully, there's a lot of references in this movie that people who aren't, well, Stuart or I and you to a degree who've watched all these films again and again and catch all of the little references. You know, we know where this is all coming from. But even if you don't, it still works. Yes, I give you that. It meets you at whatever education level you are. It, if you're really savvy, it rewards you. And I haven't seen a number of the films even referenced in here, like Baby Jane and whatnot. I saw that recently for the first time i'm still going back you know i think you never stop learning right i mean you, you always are still going back if you're curious and seeing the originals like black christmas yeah 
So let's get into the movie itself. One thing about this film after the prologue is we have a fairly large cast of characters in this one. We'll start with the main character, Sidney, Nev Campbell. I want to give Nev some props in this because overall, I actively dislike Nev Campbell. Me too. Because I've seen her in a lot of stuff. I never really watched Party of Five because I saw like two episodes and they were just too brooding. And I just think of her as a constantly unhappy person. <laughs> I, I mean, her mothers are dead. Be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Her mother's dead in Party of Five. She's constantly brooding in the Scream films, as we're going to see. I saw Wild Things and she's kind of brooding and overly serious in that. I just, I think of her as very one note. So when this movie starts and she's actually smiling and kind of a little bit carefree and kind of having a little bit of fun, I'm like, wow, I didn't know Nev Campbell could play that emotion. I agree with you. And I'm in the opposite boat of this. I saw her in exactly one other movie than Scream. I saw her in a terrible dramatization of the 70s disco nightclub 54. And that was just ridiculous. But she's really cute. She's likable. She kind of reminds me a little bit of Jennifer Gardner, a little less athletic version of her. There's a lot of backstory to Sydney, and it's important backstory. And Marjorie, I want to ask you specifically how much you got out of this, because I know for a fact that when I saw this movie the first time in theaters, I didn't get it. And when I saw the sequel in theaters, I was like, I don't get this either. And it wasn't until after Scream 2 was out and I rewatched Scream 1 and Scream 2 repeatedly on video that the entire importance of Sydney's mother's death, Sydney's father, Sydney's mother being a slut, Cotton Weary, all really gelled for me. It, it was definitely something that required multiple viewings for me to completely comprehend. What do you mean? I mean, she witnessed... Some guy leaving what she thought was cotton and thought he killed her mother. Her mom was a whore. They were having an affair or something. Right. And so so you were able to follow all that and that her mom broke up Billy's marriage and all that. That was well, all clear enough. Because he said enough. it at the end. He did say it. But, you know, I guess I wasn't paying that close of attention the first time. Because it all happens with characters we never see mm -hmm. or barely see. We see Sidney's father in exactly two scenes. An introduction scene at the beginning and when he's tied up at the end. We see Billy's father in one scene at the police house. Stuart, you said that you were surprised that there were parents at the beginning of this film. Yeah, but this is yet another horror movie where parents seem to not really exist. They're all gone. Oh, no, no, no. No adults can really exist here. The only adult they have, because they want to demonize her, is Gail Weathers, the tabloid journalist. But they're parents. They are there. They're just, of course, in the background. They're not actively involved, and nor would we want them to. This is not made for them. And I just couldn't quite follow the whole... Because there were different theories about it. Was Sydney's mom this big whore? And yeah, she was. I didn't remember any of this from my initial viewing. If you had asked me to tell me what Scream was about, I, I couldn't have recalled any of this. I had forgotten that her family had been the victim of something the year prior. I did not recall. I didn't remember Liv Schreiber being in this. We get about four seconds of him on the screen, just seeing him put in a car in basically archival footage. All of these characters who form all of the motivation are entirely off screen or mostly off screen. I just thought it was really an interesting twist that they made the mother a whore and responsible for breaking up a marriage. That's a gradual reveal. I like the way that we get it from Sydney's perspective. She doesn't want to think that way. And so, you know, that's blocked out in the beginning. And you just get the inference that something bad has happened to her. And 
then you find out her mother is a victim. And of course, you know, someone that was raped and murdered were, were like, oh my God, that's horrible. It takes a long while to come around that she had put herself in jeopardy and that maybe the raping was actually consensual extramarital sex and that the violence that befell her was something different and in a different person. I think all of that is a nice way of revealing that. Yeah, it does generate sympathy for her where you you do feel bad that, oh, her mom just died and she's going through this and everything. And then you're right, there's the gradual reveal that her mother was a two-bit whore. Although, did they have to make her a whore, maybe? Is that the reason? That's a bizarre choice, I think. It is very odd because this seems so middle America. You'd think that if she was such a slut that you'd see it somehow in other ways like there's no reason given behind her motivation for being a slut i guess because we never see her she's just discussed in rumor and accusation it doesn't play quite right and that's why it took me a couple of viewings to really grasp it all what i mean you know how do you keep them down on the farm when they see the big city i, I don't think you need a whole lot of explanation to know that she likes sex and that you know she didn't have a lot going on at that house it was kind of empty and lonely there and then we get Sydney's boyfriend, Billy, who comes in through the window. Stuart, did you get a Nightmare on Elm Street flashback? Uh, an intentional homage. And the fact that he looks exactly like Johnny Depp is maybe not unintentional as well. He was really trying. He pulled it off. He mm. is Johnny Depp. I mean, he really could be his stand-in for him. And a quick aside as we're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. Did you laugh at the line, the first Nightmare on Elm Street was good, but the rest of them sucked? You know what? It validates what I have to say. Both Wes Craven and I agree. New Nightmare is horrible. <laughs> so Billy, we find out later, is one of the killers. He's so obvious a suspect throughout the whole film, too. Yeah. Well, they play with it. He's the first person you assume, the way that he slinks about and speaks, and, you know, he's the boyfriend, but he's not particularly romantic or passionate. I mean, his idea of foreplay is saying, you remind me of the edited TV version of The Exorcist. I mean, he's he's a creep. That dialogue was just so awkward. Well, it's what Kevin Williamson is known for. He hadn't ever worked before. This was his first screenplay. And off of this, he became a huge name, and this style of dialogue, this overly unrealistic, overly referential dialogue, like Tarantino to the 10th power, became his trademark in Dawson's Creek, and just a slew of horror movies, Killing Miss Tingle, I Know What You Did Last Summer. So he writes for this crowd. Yeah. Then we have the friend roles. We have Tatum Riley, Rose McGowan. Who, who is Rose McGowan? Why do I feel I should know her? Well, she was on Charmed. That's right. She replaced Doherty, didn't she? Mm-hmm. And Manson, the antics marrying Manson. She just, yeah, she's, uh, you know, a freshly scrubbed face who has got a little bit of badness in her. I feel like there's a little Jolie going on in Rose McGowan. You know, I get her confused with Feruza Balk sometimes. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Yeah. And then, you know, recently she's been working with Robert Rodriguez. She definitely had a big part in Grindhouse. And then, of course, the wonderfully named Stuart by mm -hmm. Matthew Lillard. I hate this man. Oh, my God. <laughs> I want to punch him. He can't keep his face normal. And he just like he's like he's on crack or cocaine. He can't sit still in everything I've seen him in. And I just want to punch him. I love that. I hate him, though. <laughs> and I think that that really works for this character, despite the fact that my name aversion, it really works because, yes, he's that guy that was popular that you looked around and were like, why do people like you? You're dumb. You're obnoxious. You're crude. Like, 
like that type exists, you know, in high school. Like you definitely needed to have someone like this. Typically, they're the ones that get killed. I first discovered Lillard in my own filmography when he was in Hackers, which is also where I discovered the then unknown Angelina Jolie. I loved Angelina long before any of you, so get off her. So when I saw him in this, I'm like, oh, yes, that guy I loved in Hackers. And so I was instantly taken. And yeah, the character he plays is a jackass, but I like Matthew Lillard's performances. And I've gone on to see all of his Freddie Prince Jr. movies. Scooby-Doo? I even saw Scooby-Doo. Wow. Wow. And I got to say, you you said how he can't keep his face normal. Can you think of a better human cartoon for Shaggy than Matthew Lillard? No, since Jim Carrey's too old, it would have to be this guy. Admittedly, around the time of Summer Catch and Wing Commander is when I stopped watching their films. But no, I liked him in this movie. I like that energy and the craziness and the weirdly modulated voice he has. He's always the same guy, but I kind of like that. I don't think he's a good actor, but I like the character, the one note that he plays repeatedly. So he probably plays himself. Mm, Or he plays a type of himself. I don't know that this is who he is, but he's typecast. This is who he will be every time you see him. And, uh, you know, it's why I'm complimenting the casting director and Wes. They know that we need this energy in here, even though I would never personally ask for it. Because I don't like this kind of guy, but he exists. He should be here. And typically, he's the person that's going to get killed. We think... Think that he's dead meat because no one this obnoxious ever survives a horror movie. And then the final friend, movie geek Randy, Jamie Kennedy, before he was rolling with Bob Saget. Th- this is where Jamie Kennedy lives and dies. I know him from <laughs> absolutely nothing else. Actually, he, he lives. He lives in this one. He doesn't die. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm saying Jamie Kennedy, not Randy. I, <laughs> I know him as someone in Scream who worked in other things that I've never even saw in good name. I have to say, when I saw this movie, I thought it was Seth Green. <laughs> it wasn't until much I later that said, I realized it wasn't. <laughs> I have said he's the poor man, Seth Green. And I, I have seen him in a lot of things since this. It was Scream where I like him. I like this character because, I mean, I guess I kind of was this character. <laughs> Yeah, sure, Arnie. Let's, you know, let's look at this show. We're both <laughs> fighting for Randy. I mean, we both are trying to, you know, talk about the, the minutia of horror movies specifically, but just movies in general. Yes, he's he's the film geek. And how can I not cop to that? I identify completely with Randy. Strangely, watching it this time, though, I realize Randy's really unlikable. And I think it's because they're trying to set him up where he could be the killer. But he's not, like, fun, quirky. He's hostile quirky really i didn't get that at all i really got that he was the nerdy socially retarded guy who wants the perceived hot girl of the group of friends and once she broke up with skeet ulrich and he was accused of the murder randy would step in and be the hero and save the day that's how i thought it was going to play out yeah now he resents his best friend status he wants to be yeah he's he's the only one not partnered up i mean rose mcgowan is with Stu, and yeah you know nev is with skeet so he's the one of the friends that doesn't have anyone and so he tries to impress everyone yes he tries too hard i think that's his characteristic is that he is always trying to show how smart he is he's a know-it-all and that gets a little old but i don't think he's unlikable i mean it gives him motive because in horror movies of 
course, the weird guy that watches a bunch of horror movies and doesn't have any girlfriend is probably the killer. Of course, in this movie, just about everybody watches a lot of horror movies. They're all steeped in the knowledge. They're all dropping the references. Randy, just more so than most. Again, I mentioned Tarantino a little earlier. I, I think they were going off that he works in the video store, just like Tarantino did. Yeah, good call. You're right. You're right. This That's who this character is. And you're right. And then there are the main characters who aren't the teens. We've talked a little bit about Gail Weathers already. Courtney Cox, still at the height of Friends stardom. I was really disliking Friends around this time. I liked Friends when it started in 93. But by 96, I felt the characters had changed into caricatures. And she was the one I liked least. So I was surprised that when this movie came out, she'd kind of gone back to a persona that I liked. I mean, I've watched Courtney Cox since her days on Misfits of Science and family ties so it was good to see her in a likable role likable <laughs> eventually uh, again here's another example of like yeah i've actually never seen her in anything even though she's probably the biggest star when she made it of the cast i confession i've never seen an episode of friends honestly the only thing she is to me is the girl that bruce springsteen pulls up at the end of the video <laughs> dancing in the dark that's that's it that's honestly it i hadn't seen her since i feel she's redeemed her career by being on cougar town a show that is a terrible name and a great show it has nothing to do with cougar both animals or old ladies. Well, you could argue that she's a cougar. She is now that she broke up with our next character, David Arquette. Oh, yes. <sighs> how, how do I say prickly of all of the... Well, he's an Arquette. What can you say? He comes from a very unique family. Uh, very and, unique. <laughs> and that uniqueness comes through in every frame. I struggle with David Arquette. I struggle to understand David Arquette. Well, I don't even know where I come in on it. Well, do you guys like him? I've seen him in one other movie, and that was a Drew Barrymore movie movie never been kissed he was the goofy brother oh so i think he only can do one thing and it's goofy david arquette i like him he always brings the same kind of mannerisms to his roles Mm -hmm. but he doesn't always play the same character sometimes he's a little stupider sometimes he's just a little crazier in that respect he kind of reminds me of uh crispin glover you know what i mean it's it's the same kind of thing of just like we want some of that we know he'll do that so we bring in that weirdness i wouldn't have thought that this movie needed a david arquette vibe but he does bring something that none of the other cast does i'll give you that but i like what he brings to this role i like the kind of i mean doofy dewey i think his sweetness comes through he's very sincere i mean there's one scene where he's eating an ice cream cone it's like he's five years old with a gun i thought that was really cute actually and i kind of did like his character but i think it was underutilized because you it's such a big cast on this one that no one really got the chance to grow. I kind of liked him as the aw shucks still living with mom kind of cop and I really thought they could have played on that. I, I think if they'd done too much more it would have been too much but I still love the scene where like Rose McGowan is like completely castrating him at the police station and he's like what did mom tell you when I'm in this outfit you treat me with respect and all the other cops are laughing at him right there. That one scene makes him sympathetic because you feel for him. You just feel how embarrassed he is and how much he's trying to be a cop. But I love the ice cream scene, though, because as the other cops sitting there, is a great contrast smoking, and it's almost like Dewey was looking up to him 
Well, he's got a cigarette, but he's got his ice cream coat. I'm <laughs> thinking it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I almost saw that in the flash of when the guy threw the cigarette on the ground, and he stomped on it. Like Dewey thought, oh, should I throw my ice cream coat on the cat? I thought he would, too, actually. I'm yeah. glad I'm not alone in that. Well, that's sad that he was the best character I saw. <laughs> but I kind of liked it. I couldn't have handled if the movie had any more Dewey, but he works. I am one over eventually. At first, I'm like, I don't get you at all. But it, <laughs> but it comes down to the mustache, his aspirations to be macho and his complete failure to do so. It's just it is exactly the right kind of humor that the movie needs whenever he's on screen. It, it, he works. He, uh, the only time I don't like him is when he's in danger because then the, the movie stops making sense. Well, the thing I like about him is he feels incompetent because when he's watching the party, you don't feel those kids are safe. If you'd had the original macho cop role, some real tough guy in this role, you'd think that the kids weren't in as much danger. But with him watching them, you feel like the parents are still away. He's still living at home. He's still one of the kids. And that badge doesn't really protect them. And then you wonder about the police force that they sent Dewey to watch the kids. Yes, I agree with you. He's not a protector for them. But at the same time, I don't see anything bad happening when he's on the screen. The only false note feels like when he gets stabbed and when he's actually in the quote unquote horror part. Right, of right. You've clearly established him as Don Knotts from Mayberry. He's that guy. And that's hard to put Don Knotts in a horror movie. Now, what about the relationship between him and Gail? Because even watching this movie this last time, I didn't think Gail was serious. It's obvious Dewey is completely starstruck and in love with Gail. I always thought, even this last time, that Gail was just using him for information, using him for access. That's what I thought. And she is, for most of it. I don't know if I felt like I saw the turning point. I guess it's when they're walking on the road. But was it really a turning point? I, I don't think it really was. I, I just don't think we were privy to it. Yeah, I think that there needed to be that scene, maybe at the party, when she was using him to get in, where he was being really sweet and doting on her or something. Something we needed where he won her over and it changed for her. Because her character is really unlikable. And that's the intent of it. She's yeah. supposed to be the slimy Maury Povich inside edition girl. A female Geraldo without a mustache. It was the 1990s. Nobody in the media would ever be portrayed as anything other than a villain. They were the villain of the 1990s. Tabloid journalists were the worst. They were worse than the killer themselves. <laughs> the people reporting on the killers. It would have been great if she turned out to be the killer. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I never thought that one. That would have made a lot of sense to further her book. Maybe some people did have that theory watching the movie but to me she's an adult she doesn't fit into the list of suspects that said honestly my friends and i we were seeing this the last day we were the only ones in the theater and you know who we decided the killer was henry winkler that's who i said and watching it we also said it's henry winkler's voice on the phone this was you know before imdb and we're like that's henry winkler on the phone henry winkler's the killer and then when they kill henry winkler we're all like it's not him and the phone we're like then they cheated they used henry winkler for the phone calls <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it was not Henry Winkler on the phone. It was none of them on the phone. It was some voice actor. Yep. Well, one of the things that I like about this movie, though, is that it is a murder mystery. And I feel like I came of age in a time where murder mysteries weren't that common. Sure, every so often we got a howling part six or something. But most of the time, we didn't have whodunits like this. The killer was the other, the Jason, the Freddy. Here, I had so much fun in the theater with my friends trying to figure out who done it. And Marjorie, I could tell you were enjoying some of that last night, too. Because you kept asking me, is Henry 
Henry Winkler the killer? Is he the killer? Only because I wanted Henry Winkler to be the killer. Because the Fonz would have been great. And I loved his little nod to the Fonz with doing his hair in the mirror. I mean, come on. What better murderer would you have other than the Fonz? Richie. Oh, that would have been better, yeah. But he was too busy making Apollo 13 and all that crap. You hit it for me, Arnie. Not only have they revived the slasher genre, they have revived the murder mystery, which is, of course, where slasher movies came from. They were the dumbed-down version of murder mysteries. And I love that they bring back both. I think it's effective that we have an image of the killer, but we don't know who that is. And that I think they keep that going for the whole series. I mean, I think we're always wondering who's underneath that mask. And that's fun. Murder mystery and slasher together. It worked in Friday the 13th. It works here. That's true. And you know what just hit me? Just this conversation. I didn't even put the Matthew Lillard thing together. When you said who's under the mask, my mind went to Scooby-Doo. And that was the whodunit of my generation were these Scooby-Doo cartoons. And like Scooby-Doo, Scream fucks with you because you think it could be one of the minor characters. Marjorie, you mentioned the cigarette scene. What just clicked for me is that when he throws that cigarette butt down and stamps on it, we see the police chief's shoe, which is the same shoe that comes down in the women's bathroom stall when Sydney's about to be attacked. So everybody's a suspect, just like Randy says, even the minor characters, even the adults, like the principal and the police chief. I didn't even notice that. That's cool. I didn't notice that either, Arnie. That's that's good observation. I, I, you're right. I think if you formed a theory about who it is, you can build a case. They've given little clues that it really could be anyone. And they also do the exact opposite. They give a moment that makes you think, well, then I guess it couldn't be them. Because they were in this scene when this was going on they cheat but not by having two killers <laughs> no it's a brilliant choice for this they can't do it again i'm hoping that the sequels don't try to cop to that because she can't repeat it it's kind of like jason's mom being the killer in part one she can't be the one to come back in part two you need jason but for this one for this intro it totally works and even billy who we've all said is the greatest suspect he's the one thrown out there even he gets that scene of well it can't be him because the killer just came in and killed him that's jumping to the end why don't we just go ahead and walk through the movie with the knowledge that we know Ghostface is two killers. He is Stu and he is Billy. Let's just go through. Let's see the kills. Let's see what they do. Let's see if we can figure out what they're doing when they're doing. Again, I, I love the fact that it's not just slasher kills we're getting here. We're getting mystery. We're getting suspense. We're getting humor. And in fact, we're not getting a lot of kills. We get two right off the bat. But then what we get, and this is strange in horror films, especially in the 90s. I think we got it a lot more early on, but as body counts increased with horror films, it was very rare that the serial killer would show up, stage an attack, but not get his victim or a victim. And we first get that when Sydney's in the house alone, her father's left on a business trip. It's the night after Casey's death. She gets the phone calls from Ghostface, and then he gets in the house and starts chasing her around after they have the talk of the scary movies, but she locks herself in the bedroom and she escapes there's no death there. We know she can't die, right? At this point, we figured out that Nev is the star. They're not going to do to her what they did to Drew. Although, we're a little unsettled. Maybe they will. It's The movie is, has fooled us once. Maybe they'll do it again. I, I will say, on my first viewing, I didn't realize she was the untouchable. You know, looking at it with retrospective eyes, they gave her character way too much backstory to kill instantly. Mm -hmm. But when I'm first watching this, barely know who Nev Campbell is. They kill Drew. Everyone one's fair game. It's right. a big cast. 
But what's better about it is that when Billy shows up through the window, coming through the window again, and again, that's just a creepy move. Why is he coming through her bedroom window when he knows her parent isn't home? He drops a cell phone, and they're so rare at that time that she thinks that he just took off the mask and came in the other way and that she's about to have it. It's a good reveal, and if we weren't there already, we moved him to the primary suspect, top of the list. And it makes you think, why didn't he just kill her then? Well, he couldn't. She she slammed him in the face with the door, and I mean, she tried to run out no, the door. when he snuck in the window as himself. Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously, it would have been much easier. He could have just killed her then. No, no. No, no, no. There is a game involved. There is a plan. They have plotted this movie. They're screenwriters. They want to kill her, but they need to do it on the anniversary of her own mother's death. They've decided that's the most effective signature for their killer, is if she dies at the exact moment as her mother one year later and that's still a few days away as we go through these deaths one of the big things i do want to talk about is their motive because you as you say they plotted it and it is dropped the reason they kill casey and steve in the first scene is Stu was dating casey casey dumped Stu for steve Mm-hmm. And so there was that you bitch kind of motivation. So I kind of want to get into some of the other motivations as we go through. But yes, this is obviously to increase awareness amongst everyone. Did they want Sydney to get away then? It was intentional that she got away. They didn't plan on killing her that day. To me, that's the way it plays is they wanted to scare her. They wanted to let her know the killers were beginning. They wanted to get it going. But I don't think at that time they were ready to actually kill her. I thought the whole killing her on her mother's death anniversary was just kind of loosely put together though anyway though so you think that they were going to get her right then and there if they could have yeah i mean if you're batshit crazy enough that you're (laughs) killing people because you perceive that their parents broke up your parents marriage or whatever are you batshit enough crazy and smart to do it on a particular day or anything keep in mind at this point they've already kidnapped her father and kept him alive and tied up to be the scapegoat yeah they do have that plan that said the attack is brutal enough and there are a couple close enough calls that it seems like Stu wants to kill her because you got to figure it's Stu in the outfit because billy's coming in the window it's a good point billy could have come through that window in ghost face but he chooses not to billy comes in like just a second after we see ghost face with his knife through the door so it had to be stew in the outfit and i have a question though obviously ghostface is slightly incompetent because there's many times when you think ghostface is going to get it because he trips over stuff he falls for every ploy it's like they they claim to have watched the horror movies and based it all on the horror movies but yet they haven't because they're missing all the key things that the victim's going to do to them to trip them up but i love the slapstick of it every time i watch this movie when ghostface gets a punch in the face it's like oh yeah you know it, it gives you that moment it, it makes it more fun okay but my point is they have intricately planned this out starting over a year ago doing this but they can't anticipate all the moves you know i don't think they planned it a year in advance i think a year ago billy was pissed that sydney's mom had broken up his parents marriage okay his parents had just divorced his mom had just left he was left with his dad his cheating father and so i think in a rage they killed sydney's mom got away with it cotton was set up and then 
they just kind of sat back and plotted how to kill some more people. And maybe it was when Casey dumped Stu. The Stu's like, we can't wait anymore. Let's let's go. We're getting on the one year anniversary anyway. To me, it plays better that they were fucking with her, that they weren't going to actually kill her. Who's to say even the knife was real, right? No skin was broken. Maybe it was just going to be a scare. That said, they weren't anticipating the cops and Gail to show up moments later or even Tatum. So I think they're doing improv. Early in the movie, when we're first introduced to Sydney and her dad is there. She's sitting at her computer typing. I thought maybe she was on AOL or something. During this scene we see she has like that TTY deaf person software on her computer. I just thought they were trying to do some sort of internet chat thing that she dialed her modem or something. I didn't think it was TTY. I thought that they were just trying to be hip with the times and I'll be honest, technology over the last 15 years has been a blur, so I'm not really sure what they had in 1996, but I thought that's what was going on. At first I thought she's on a BBS, which was the old pre-internet bulletin board systems that just had text on them like that. But then it did say, like, at the top, like, hard of hearing something. I mean, like, I guess I needed a drop line like she was talking to her grandma because not everybody just had TTY software on their computer. Yeah, I didn't understand that, but I did attribute to pre-internet. You know, I don't think I was on the internet in 96 yet. I was a late bloomer, and I think when I did, I was on AOL. So, you know, like, this was like, oh, this must have been something for people that know more than me about the internet. I don't think I put a lot of thought into what she was doing. And then Billy drops the cell phone and it's in slow-mo and it's like a big reveal. He's got a phone. But you know, again, I wasn't on the internet. I didn't have a cell phone. These people look hip to me in 96. And even the cops, what are you doing with the cellular phone, son? Was this back when like all drug dealers had pagers? (laughs) I think I do think it is a a bleed over to anyone that needs to be contacted anywhere they walk must be a criminal or be shady. It's funny how that that, that stereotype is now defines all of us. Like, we couldn't imagine a world in which anyone could just call us wherever we were walking, and now I don't think people can think of a world without it. So then there's a, it's a while, you're right, that's a missed opportunity, and then there's another missed opportunity in the bathroom. I like that because you think of school as being a safe environment. With the exception of the original Nightmare on Elm Street, you don't think of school during the day with kids wandering everywhere as being a place where you can be attacked and killed. I honestly kind of wonder if that was her imagination. You you don't think that Stu or Skeet were in the stall waiting? It's possible, but I when I watched that, I wondered if it was her imagination. It is the scene out of all of them that feels the most unrealistic because, yeah, were they just sitting on the stall thinking she's going to come in here eventually? And <laughs> to that point, was it even really them? Because there were so many other teens running around in the costume at this point because they'd found the mask at Sydney's house when Dewey showed up. So they now knew what the killer was wearing. Sure, they attacked Sydney, but who's to say it? wasn't an elaborate prank. Well, I think the difference in the motive is we see the pranksters called to the principal's office, and while they're being chewed out by Henry Winkler with a pair of scissors, this scene is happening, so it legitimizes that this is the real deal. It also is a funny way of acknowledging early, there's two pranksters in the costume. They've told us, hey, there's two of them, and it goes right over most people's heads. It definitely went over mine. Yeah, it went over mine, too. And that's the scene that really made us think it's Henry Winkler. Right, you think the movie's telling you because he's like telling the kids he's gonna cut them with the scissors and he's gonna gut them. And they. 
wasted his role. I mean, for all the little red herrings they're dropping with Henry Winkler, they could have done so much more. But they no, really Marjorie, I'm going to fight you on this. I hate <laughs> Henry Winkler in this movie. Get him out of this movie. I know that you love him and feel like he should be a big part of this. I hated every moment he was on screen. It was useless. That was the problem, though. No, he is terrible. I blame Pulp Fiction that for its Fonzie reference that we even had to deal with him because this is a miscasting. He should not be in this movie. He's terrible. It's a false note in a movie that hits a lot of right notes. This doesn't work for me at all. I liked it. I liked him in it. I liked it then because now I've seen Henry Winkler in The Waterboy and in Arrested Development, the TV series. He, he seems to be ubiquitous now. But when Scream came out, I couldn't recall the last time I'd seen the Fawn. I mean, you do remember Sam Jackson popularizing the, the moment in the diner where he says, be cool like Fonzie. You know, I do think and that's also a, a Miramax movie. I do think that Miramax was taking a lot from Tarantino. I think this is a Pulp Fiction joke. Maybe it was. I didn't take it as such then. I said earlier, I kind of think that Williamson is doing a Tarantino with the references and Randy being Tarantino and this being a Miramax film. Sure, I I now see why Fonzie would be there, but not taking that into account when I saw this movie in 96, I liked it. I liked him in it. I was like, oh, it's Fonzie and you feel safe and then you're like, oh, he's the killer. That's a great turnaround because you wouldn't expect it to be Fonzie. But no, then we have Fonzie gets killed. But you do expect it to be an adult figure. I wasn't sure. But you do expect the killer to be an adult, like the crazy janitor or the crazy parent. The crazy janitor was a great cameo. Wes Craven in a Freddy sweater. Eh, A funny joke. Maybe too much, but this movie is replete with them. There's tons of it and it's just another joke to throw in the fire. What I do like is when we finally get to Henry Winkler's death, they've more or less said what I had been starting to feel. There's a moment exchanged between Dewey and Gail where they talk about serial killers and this person can only be a serial killer if someone else dies. You know, he's not a serial killer yet. They say something like that. And I'm thinking, yeah, no one else has died. This is getting a little slow. And the movie realizes, you're right, we need to do this and we're going to do it right now. I didn't like Henry Winkler, but I did like the fact that they charged the movie again with another death. The movie didn't realize this. Actually, the Weinsteins realized this. This death wasn't in the original screenplay. And before production, they went to Williamson and said, "Uh, you got 30 pages here where nothing really happens. So put a death in there. They were right. Weinsteins are right. This movie is just starting, just barely starting to lose steam here. And they bring it back. I think because of the attacks, I never felt it lost steam. The attacks kept coming. Nobody died, but the attacks were so prevalent that the suspense was there. And the fact that it happened in the bathroom, you felt an attack could come from anywhere at any moment. They didn't have to be at home alone at night. They could be at school. They could be anywhere and the attack would come. And then when the principal bites it, that reinforces that feeling. Yeah. And I know that they weren't planning to have them in the original because you just told me that. But I like they kept the M.O. the same. You think that the killer's got to use the scissors, right? Because Fonzie's brandishing these giant scissors and snipping them in front of kids' face as he's expelling them. But the truth of the matter is they kill them the way they killed anyone else with the knife and then they string him up on the goalpost. Why do they kill him? Because they have to rule him out as a potential suspect for people like you that think he's the killer. But it goes back to my theory. They don't seem to have this all planned out very well. Fonzie's death is one of the two that I cannot come up with a motive for at all. Seems very happenstance. But of course, they're crazy is what we're supposed to see. So they're not supposed to be rational. However, if you're a serial killer, you've got this well planned. You know what you're doing. You've got your calling card down. You've got your method of murder down. 
down. You know how you're going to bind your victims. And I mean, these guys have none of that. Could it possibly be that they just know they need to kill a bunch of people, but before they do the kill, that really matters. Hurting the Prescotts seem to be what's important. And indeed, Billy, that's his ultimate goal, is that all of this is built around this. I think everyone else's death is slightly arbitrary in that it could be anyone. I don't know that everyone they kill is someone that has personally wronged them. I, they just know that they need to create the terror and the panic in the town. So killing the principal, killing the authority figure, you know, ensuring that the school is going to stay closed and chaos will reign it works well enough okay but honestly now let me take a step back here because they didn't have to go to this much work because this does seem like a lot of work and <laughs> I, i'm not going to say that they're being lazy because it is but with her mother dying a year ago in a very brutal death very publicized it would not have been a far stretch for her father to kill her and then kill himself they could have just staged that and avoided all this rigmarole that they went through it would have been very believable. But A, they're psychos. They want to do the killing. And B, I do think Stu wanted Casey dead. I, I mean, that dropped line tells me. So maybe they're planning this murder-suicide staging. And then Stu's sitting there going, no, dude, man, I got to kill her. That bitch, she wronged me. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. And plus, let's keep in mind, too, this is a slasher movie. And the fact that we're debating realism so much here is, is a sign that they've at least taken the extra step that the forebearers did not. I mean, we did not sit here during – well, actually, we did. But <laughs> <laughs> we were not rewarded when we sat here and debated motives in earlier slasher movies. People die because that's what they must do in a movie like this. And I, I still have the same question about the next one. The next death is Tatum. Is that really the next death? That yeah. Really is. It seems like a big gap in between there, but yes, there was. Actually, there's not because what happens is the principal declares schools closed, mm -hmm. and then they say we're having a party tonight. Then the principal dies. Then we go to the party, and then people leave the party when they hear the principal is strung up. Yeah, I thought that was a funny touch too. The fact that the only thing that could get them away from the beer bash is to go see their principal dead. <laughs> That's pretty ruthless. It's a cynical touch that it made me smile. <laughs> And with Tatum's death, it may be my favorite. She is set up to die. Stu says, why don't you go get me a beer? Her response is, what am I, the beer wench? And when she goes out there, Billy is waiting to mm -hmm. kill her. That's right. We know it can't be Stu because he's inside still entertaining the party and the Hugh Hafner thing. So that kind of rules him out. At that point, if you'd been thinking it's Stu, it can't be Stu. He's got 30 alibis. So who is it? Well, yes, it's Billy. Billy hasn't shown up to the party yet. And Williamson has a lot of fun paralleling Halloween to this scene. At this moment, he's directly referencing it because Jamie Kennedy's gone on about the rules and, and they're literally watching Halloween and the clips. This scene is an ironic take on the moment when the girl is waiting in bed and her boyfriend comes back from the kitchen with the sheet over him and the glasses and she thinks he's playing a joke and it's really Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. That's right because she thinks it's Randy. I didn't even catch that and they are watching that scene at that moment. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And again, honoring Halloween. He likes it as much as I do and indeed he would go on to write the H2O reboot. I love the fact that he's honoring and reinventing Halloween in this moment. And that's not even the reason I love the scene. I just, I like the fight. I like that she slams him in the face with the freezer door. I like that she chucks Again, some beer bottles at him. you should have seen that coming. <laughs> I, you know what? I love her joke. You know, is this, I spit on your garage. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Just, it just, I don't know why that character would know so much about horror movies. I think they've written it wrong. The fact that she's kind of being a Randy in this moment and being like, oh yeah, right. And she has all this horror knowledge that I don't know that the character actually 
actually would, but it's fun. And, you know, she's playing off the Jamie Lee Curtis image, though. It really works. And then Death by Pet Door. <laughs> they have the cat that jumps out of nowhere. They gotta have that cliche. I love that. <laughs> they set up the pet door with the cat running out of it in the beginning of the scene. And then, of course, when things turn violent and she has to get away, that's the obvious way to get out of the room is to climb through the very small pet door. And then the killer kind of improvs. I think I called them improvisers earlier that they can string her up by just hitting the button on the door. I don't know that that would kill her. I, it did look like a rich neighborhood. They may have a better garage door opener than me. I don't know that my garage door opener would open it with some ice on the door. It seems like on a normal day, it's struggling to get that door up. I don't think it would break a neck, but it's a nice death. I question whether those boobs could fit through a pet door, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, they couldn't. Oh, no, she was halfway out. Yeah, right. the she boobs was... were out. <laughs> that is that is amazing. No, that is impossible. You're right. You have found the problem with the scene. Those boobs <laughs> would not have get out that door. But guys, it gets back to my question. Why did they set Tatum up? Was it just, again, more carnage? I didn't see anything where Stu wanted to break up with her. I'll go with carnage. I got to believe that they know they want to kill a certain amount of people. I think they're kind of indiscriminate about who it is. I don't think they have a beef with everyone that they kill. You know what? I actually felt bad when Tatum died because one of the things this movie does really well, and I don't know that we've seen this in any other horror movie, not many anyway, maybe A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, is have realistic feeling relationships. These characters, you feel like they are friends and Dewey and Tatum are brother and sister. And that relationship, when Tatum dies, makes me feel worse because you feel bad about Dewey losing his sister. And he was the protector. We never see Dewey coming to that realization, right? Like that dramatically wouldn't work if he saw her hanging in the garage, right? Who discovers Tatum? I don't remember who discovers him. It's actually Sydney later. So yeah, we don't see Dewey react, but the fact that these characters all related, Tatum's death of all, you know, she would have been a very easy death had she not been seen also as Dewey's sister. If she was just the kind of slutty best friend like we've seen in Halloween, then her death would only have that same feeling as, oh, someone died. But here, I felt a little worse because of Dewey. God forbid, you know, and I hate to put it this way, but horror movies are kind of framed in the way that, oh, she deserved it because she was slutty or sexy or whatever. And you're right. By humanizing her, by making her the sister of the law enforcement person, it makes it much worse. You do feel bad. And Dewey was a very sympathetic character because he was really trying to be a big boy. Yeah. Seeing just that little interplay at the police station that we talked about earlier made her death harder for me. She does deliver a kick to the crotch like so many. Do you notice how many times these guys get kicked in the crotch? All the damn time. (laughs) You think they start wearing cups after the second one. Yeah. Now, we've kind of ignored when we're talking about the kills some of the other things going on we have the gale dewey investigation you know it was fine for me but i never put a whole lot of stock into it oh when they go down the road and look at the car the car but also just talking at it at the high school and the the entire investigation of her trying to run it down and did you notice who one of the reporters were at the school with gale Linda Blair. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think this was the moment, like I said, where I suspect we are supposed to realize that Gail actually does like Dewey, that she's not just manipulate him. It doesn't really come to fruition. I don't actually feel like I saw that scene until suddenly they're in the bushes on top of one another. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> she, 
she likes it too? It didn't really make any sense to me. She likes it goofy. And hey, you can't argue and say that that would never happen because these characters actually got together in real life <laughs> because of this movie. It's crazy. And also, yes, yeah, Stuart, you referenced Randy's The Rule scene, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk at length about The Rules. Do you like the referential scene? I, of course, loved it. I was eating it up in 96. I felt like I was one of the last remaining horror fans when this came out. You know, I'd been watching the shit put out and just hoping for good. So when somebody starts going about the rules, shit, he's giving me my next college paper. There's no joke in that because I read your college papers. Arnie was was definitely doing Randy's and getting college credit for it. It's amazing. <laughs> and now that you've said Tarantino, I can't not see Tarantino. It's it's so obvious now. But here is where the movie shows its hand. This is what the whole movie has been doing and they're going to make it a monologue. They're going to make it overt. They're going to tell you I'm deconstructing slasher movies and telling you what they're about and how they're parables about if you commit sin, no sex, no drugs, no alcohol, you're going to get it. The third rule is a little dodgy with the I'll be right back line, but it's it's true. I don't know why that would be the third rule, but it's kind of true in horror movies. If you say that, it's curtains. He was right. I liked that scene. I don't think his character was really unlikable. He was kind of the dorky nerd, and it fit that that was his monologue. I mean, you related this, knowing slasher movies. At this point, you're at least nodding your head. Absolutely. It was summed up everything we already knew, basically. It's great, though, because it acknowledges us, the horror film geeks, and goes, we're one of you. At the same time, it's teaching the uninitiated, the ones who might not have figured it out on their own. There's probably several people that had never exactly come to these conclusions, and this is revelatory. For us, it's, we're the amen course at this point. We've been screaming it for a long time, and now somebody is getting to put it down in film. And of course, there's another thing that's happening in the scene, too. He's talking about the perils of not having sex and what's going on in the bedroom upstairs, but Billy and Sid are debating about whether it's time for her to finally lose her virginity and why she has remained a virgin. She spells it out that because her mother was promiscuous, she felt like it was a... I don't know. Was she afraid of that it was on the road to death? Was she afraid that she was going to emulate it, or did it just turn her off from the physical act? I think it might have turned her off to the physical act, and she didn't want to be known as the slut's daughter, who's also a slut, want to soil her reputation, but... The fact that she did remain a virgin shows that even before Gail Weathers came along and stated this about Cotton and the affairs and everything, she knew that. She suspected, you mean? Yes. Nev Campbell's character suspected that her mom was promiscuous because it was influencing her life. And indeed, there's an exchange between her and Gail at one point in which we realize that Gail is right. As much as we don't like her, we realize that Gail is right in concluding in her book that this girl lied in her testimony because she couldn't face the fact that her mother was a slut because she didn't want to believe that she was willing to finger a man and say that she saw things that she did not and give him a death sentence on death row. Uh, it's too bad that that subplot never comes about. I'm willing to believe there's cut scenes where they go back to that because, yeah, she committed perjury. <laughs> uh, maybe that will be covered in the sequel. I don't know. But without spoilers, it does come up in the sequel, making me wonder, were there cut scenes or is Leave Shriver to scream what Sam Samuel L. Jackson is to the Phantom Menace, a character who's put in the first one with the knowledge that in the sequels we're going to make more of him. I don't know. That's interesting. I'm curious to see the sequels then because I barely remember them and I don't remember him in them. All right. I'm a guy, obviously, but I felt really bad for Sydney because she lost her virginity 
when deceived by her mother's killer. And for some reason, I see losing her virginity as something worse than killing her mother. I think that is like Billy's biggest crime. <laughs> it is another sick twist and one we don't realize until later or don't have confirmed until later. But it is – we know it's a possibility and we know that she's being seduced. We don't necessarily want this scene to happen. And like a lot of sex in horror movies, we aren't being like, oh, yeah, we're getting on. I kind of want her to remain a virgin, but but she makes the choice that she can be different from her mother, and, and we like to see her feel empowered, but you're right. We don't feel good about whose arm she's going into to get this actualization. We, we don't trust Billy yet. We may not think he's the killer, but we also don't really like him. Yeah, and you can tell that she still doesn't trust him very much, and she still has those doubts, but yet she goes ahead with it. She laughs it off when she realizes later he's given a call when he gets put in jail, and mm-hmm. hey, that call could have actually been the one that you called when the killer called me and I assumed that that meant you were in jail and it couldn't be you. She doesn't laugh it off. I think she's still suspicious, making me wonder why she'd screw him mm-hmm. if she thinks that he still could be a suspect. I don't understand that choice that she makes. I mean, this is a big choice. It's not like she's a slut. It's not like she's sleeping with everybody and, she, oh, well, you might have killed my mom, but okay, fuck me. It's, you know... It happens it, every day. <laughs> I don't think she realizes it until the moment is happening. I think it's we're watching dawning consciousness of like, hey, wait a minute, when you're in jail, you do get a phone call but you know like she trusts him again because she just trusted him with the ultimate like of course she's not going to jump to the conclusion the way that she did when the cell phone found out she's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt she's internalized it as oh I've been a bitch I've been the one closed off you're not the killer I I don't think she suspects him at that moment I I think it plays different to me and I love the way that he says what do I have to do to prove to you I'm not a killer and it gets answered the next second with Ghostface coming in and stabbing him. That's the only way. That is the only way that he can convince the audience that he is not the killer to die. And so he does. Or so we think. So here we have the end with the chase. Sydney falls out the window, and I'm glad the movie doesn't make us think she's falling to her death, and then, ooh, she's saved. The movie lets us know right away she's in no danger. This fall is just to get her out of the house. And to remind me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because the chick did that in every one of those movies. Oh, we're learning so much through now playing. <laughs> it's true. If I hadn't just watched all of these other horror franchises, I wouldn't have caught that as a Texas Chainsaw reference. And then we get a scene that I liked, and I have to admit, I didn't get this at first. We see Randy, and he's watching Halloween all alone. All the real gore hounds have gone off to see the principal. He's acting stoned, because I've seen drunk people. Yeah, his illegal beverage of choice did not jive with how he was acting. Yeah, because he was acting stoned, talking to the TV, like, turn around, Jamie. But the actor's name, Jamie, and Jamie needed to turn around because there was a killer behind him. Maybe it's the reason why he got hired for the job because it's so perfect that Jamie is telling Jamie to look behind you because the killer is coming. I, I think that would have made sense, Arnie, and actually been the plan had Jamie Kennedy been a name or a name still to this day. <laughs> Whether intentional or not, it's a funny little extra. And yes, it reminded me of a moment. I think it was Friday the 13th Part 4 almost identical where a guy's watching a porno and the killer's coming behind him. Yes, Teddy. Yes. Well, good good recall. <laughs> I, I don't want to remember things like that. But okay, Teddy. It's, it's a Teddy uh, homage. 
And when Ghostface is coming up, the whole thing is scored to the Halloween music because he's watching Halloween. It's a great reuse of a of just a wonderful score. You can hear Brock Stewart and I talk about that on our Halloween retrospective series podcast. You can find it now playing podcast.com. But using it here was just so, so perfect. I loved it here. And by having it on the video, it's the only way they could have ever used that music again. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just looks like a ripoff. And it would be. Mm-hmm. Williamson has really done his homework. How fun. And of course it means that Randy is going to die here and that they're going to play off of that with what's going on in the van, which has been watching from a secret camera on 30 second delay. But no, that's not what happens. The people in the van get it. And here it's because Sydney runs and the cameraman's there. I think the cameraman, you know, I've been going through motive. I think he's just, oh, this guy's here. Got to kill him so I can get to Sydney and not be stopped by the big burly camera guy. He has almost no personality. His one character trait is that he's eating junk food i never had him as a suspect i can honestly say he was completely a functional character i never thought of him as being really a character with motives or or it would have been very unsatisfying if kenny the cameraman had ended up being one of the killers (laughs) but again scooby-doo could have been yeah yeah what i don't get also though and is why does randy live because ghostface is coming up behind randy randy's kind of stoned out of his mind talking to the television and we get to see it on the 30 second delay does the killer see the hidden camera because it's like the mask looks at the camera and then runs out the door is it like shit this is all getting on tape i'm not gonna kill randy randy's not going anywhere i gotta go kill the cameraman i like that theory i honestly at this point this is a part in the movie where i felt a a lot of things happened really fast and I got confused. Like all of a sudden Dewey had a knife in his back and Gail was wrecking the van and like a lot of things were happening in the next five minutes. I felt a little lost and then it settles and, and I felt back into the movie. But at this point, I don't know why the killer ran out of the room. I don't know what Nev was doing running through the prairie. It just all was sort of happened so fast. It did seem kind of just pieced together there. And there was a lot that you had to assume happened. You see the aftermath so they can get to the whole Sydney, Stu, and Billy showdown. And we get to the who's the killer. And Randy and Stu are really our last two suspects, right? Billy's supposedly dead. Mm -hmm. Everybody's pretty much dead except for Randy and Stu, or they're all out of the principal. Right. And they're blaming each other. And again, you've got to love it when this movie has stated the rules and then it either follows them, you know, the big breasted bimbos running up the stairs. Well, you see why she has to run up the stairs or here, you know, she has to make a choice. Usually they make the wrong one here. She's like, fuck you both. It slams the door in their face and locks herself in Stu's house. No, no, it's brilliant because yeah, I'll, you guys just, I don't care which one's the killer. You can just have it out on the porch. It's, it makes us like Nev Campbell. It makes us like Sydney because yes, That is the correct choice. You protect yourself. You don't try and figure out who it is at this moment. You protect yourself and sort of leave it for the cops to figure out when they arrive. And Billy comes down the stairs. We think he's wounded. And then the reveal. And it's happening at right the the perfect moment. Screenwriting rules, 90 pages in, 90 minutes in. You want to get to your conclusion. You want to know what's going on. You want to change it up. And it's time for the big confession. And yes, it's not just Billy. And he's not a victim. It's Billy and Stu together. Did you like the reveal, Marjorie? I, I knew going in. Stuart or Marjorie, you two have to decide. Was it a good conclusion of who the killer is, why they're doing it? I thought it was lame. I know, it just wasn't very good. 
good. I wasn't impressed with it. I don't think that they've developed enough about the mother and the tension, and they kind of jumped right into that immediately, the Gale Weathers. Would flashbacks would have helped if we had actually seen them do the mother and Cotton Weary having sex with her? If we had actually gone back in that moment, would that have made it more believable? That might have helped a little bit. They just they, The mother was just pictures. That's what I'm saying when I said that that story didn't play out for me the first time, is that story, the fact that these are the killers and these are why they're doing it, and it's all told and it's all in passing and it's all speculation, a flashback with Cotton Weary, something with Cotton to drive it home a little more mm-hmm. would have helped them as the killers to be a bit more satisfying. I mean, they said his name enough times, Cotton Weary, Cotton Weary, over and over, that you really thought this is going to build to something, and it didn't. And I think they were setting up Cotton Weary could have been the killer. I mean, we know he's supposedly on death row, but had he escaped? Is he trying to get revenge on Sydney? He's a suspect for sure. Yeah. Now, aside from that and how it was done and everything, I just think it's kind of stupid that he killed the mother because the mother broke up his parents' marriage, but now he's got to have revenge on the whole family, which, yes, he's irrational, he's a psycho killer, whatever, and his friend's just along for the ride. It just didn't play well, I thought. Well, you know what? I feel like those were things that were said. I don't think that those were things that were believed. I'm going to throw something else out here. Williamson is making one more reference to another serial killer, a real life one, two of them, Leopold and Loeb. Are you guys familiar with this case? Mm-mm. In the 1920s, two homosexuals abducted children and murdered them. And it, it's a lot has been written about it. They're, they're, in some ways, they're the prototypical horror killers. And their whole thing about it was because no one understood homosexuality at that time, it gave them a God complex. They thought, we live lives that no one else around us can imagine. And it made them feel like gods. And at one point, because they had a God complex, they felt like we don't have to have morals. We can kill whoever we want. We are essentially sociopathic. And it's sort of like an intellectual crime. Alfred Hitchcock more or less did it in the movie Rope, if you ever saw that. There's been a couple other TV movies about Leopold and Loeb. They're not maybe as popular or well-known now, but Williamson knows them. And that's what this is. And it made me think that maybe Stu and Billy, maybe they have something going on here. I said that. I thought that maybe there was an attraction there or maybe a tryst and this was the result of it somehow in their sick minds. What, what's funny is when it comes out that the two of them, Marjorie Tristan goes, what, were they gay lovers? And I'm like, no, no, you'll see. And then there's the scene where like Lillard gets up behind Ulrich and is like pressed against him. And I'm like, all right, that's a little too intimate. <laughs> no, Kevin Williamson, the screenwriter, is an out person. I don't I don't feel bad by saying he's gay. I, I do think he was making a, a personal statement at this point that, that these guys were the screenwriters of the horror movie in their heads. This is all just a movie to them. And this is their motive. And I think Williamson he was copping to it, too. I think that he wanted to honor Leopold and Loeb. And I think if you can pick up on it, I do think it adds a, a more believable motive than the you broke up my family with your slut mother and I'm going to get you. I think that's something that they say. I don't think it's something they really mean. I got that Billy really meant it and that Stu was hearing it for the first time, though, because Billy's at first like, we don't need a motive. It's the millennium, you know, all of Mm -hmm. that. But then he goes, or maybe it's because you're slut of a mother. And Stu Lillard gives a reaction there that's like, oh, is that why we're doing this? I didn't know. And so I take it as Billy had that other reaction and Stu was finding out for the first time right there. But that said, it would help add the whole why to the Rose McGowan 
cow in death. Well, let's kill our beards. Yeah, exactly. They weren't really our girlfriends anyway. I like it. I think it works. And I think it's just enough. I think if they had made that explicit, it definitely would have been a problem for some of the audience at that time. And I think it's just more fun to to be inside on a joke than to have it be an explicit. They give you a real motive and they imply other motives. To me, it works. I, you know, it doesn't work to me that Stu would do it out of peer pressure. That's dumb. But when I look at the Leopold and Loeb connection, I think, well, I can go with that. See, I just thought Stu was a fucking nut and Billy was pushed by his mother leaving and that the two together, they found each other in homicide. That said, God, how much better would it have been if, instead of Skeet Ulrich if that had been Freddie Prince Jr. in the Billy role? I don't know. I've never seen Freddie Prince Jr. in anything. It's just he and Matthew Lillard are in everything together. So if they were gay lover killers together, that just would have been perfect. <laughs> maybe they wouldn't have worked together again. Maybe, maybe their uh, handlers would be like, look, we don't need to put this out here. God knows this movie likes to dish on on things like Richard Gere and his gerbils. I, I don't I don't think that they want to go there. They make it explicit when Billy says that life is just one big movie. In this world, that's true. I mean, I, hopefully you're not out there living your life that way. There, there's other ways of experiencing reality, I think, than using movies as a model and reference. But for this world and these characters, yes, they're all living in a movie and the genre is clearly slasher. You know, I hate to say it, and it's another conversation for another time, but real briefly, reality TV, it's becoming worse since this movie came out, not better. People are living movies. Well, yeah, I blame Real World. And as I say that, cut to camera three as we finish the show, please. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) As we talk to people that aren't there. (laughs) Now, here's their big mistake. Of course, the killer has to reveal their motives. It's it's a cliche. These guys stab each other before they kill Sydney. (laughs) Kill Sydney first. Let's Get the order of things right. Yeah, that was a fatal error I thought on Literally. That. Yeah, it, obviously they did not pay attention to the movies they were watching. It's the movie's one misstep is that these guys have watched so many horror movies, they're breaking the rules. Why not break one last rule, kill the heroine before you mortally wound yourself to be saved as your alibi? And it was past midnight. At this point, they could have done it by their own rules. They were waiting to do it on the actual anniversary and the exact time of her mother's death. Well, if that were still going to happen, then okay, but that's already passed. There is really no reason to keep Nev Campbell alive at this point at all. No, and so so we're all agreed. It's just this is a one point of bad screenwriting. Yeah, well, you know, it's a bad judgment. I don't know if it's bad screenwriting. It's yeah, they shouldn't have done it that way. It definitely impairs them when things go wrong. Gail comes in and tries to shoot them with a gun with the safety on, and they're because they're bleeding. They're not able to respond to the changing circumstances the way they can. I like the way it's working. It's a bit of a stretch. I kind of wondered if that was done intentionally, though, to make them just seem more off than they were because not that they were doing it wrong but because they were sitting there actually stabbing each other trying to get that murder going so that they could appear to be victims and live and everything because only a crazy person would mutilate themselves like that I have to wonder, did maybe Billy mean to kill Stu? I wondered that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there's at least getting, he was getting some joy out of inflicting pain on this guy that he had been collaborating with, that he wanted to be the solo killer. But he made one fatal mistake. It's like the let's have that contest to see who can punch softest. You go first. Yeah. Because <laughs> as soon as he stabbed Stu and Stu's like, fuck, man, that hurt. And he's like, now remember, don't go too deep. And Stu's like, fuck that. Oh, guess I missed. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hard to say, but I don't know. I, it's turning this moment into comedy. Up to this point, I felt like, okay, we're still in a horror movie, and at this point, it's feeling like slapstick. The other thing I'll kind of go with is maybe Blair Witch. Maybe in order for this to be their movie, they had to have an audience, and they even had to have an audience for them stabbing themselves. I'm making this shit up as I sit here, but it's it's clicking for me this way. No, I like that. I, I agree that, you know, yes, that's why they tell her everything. It wouldn't be any fun to tell her and have her not put it together, I heard to have her not know. I mean, they drag out the dad. They want the audience for that, but I don't know why they would need the audience for the stabbing. Just to show how committed they are. Sure. For me, the real misstep is one that I understand conceptually, but to me plays very poorly. The idea that Sid will turn the tables. She'll put on the ghost face mask. She'll call them. They don't sell the believability of this moment to me. I don't know why she would do that. It seems a little too movie-ish for me at that point. I mean, I want to believe in a, in a real Sid. I want to believe she would be the smart person. She would call the cops. She would get out of that situation. She wouldn't arm herself with an umbrella and wait in the closet to attack them. But if horror movies have taught you anything, Stuart, it's that the people in distress don't make wise decisions. I mean, what kind of horror movie would it be if I dialed 911 when there's a crazy guy calling me on the phone and the cops showed up and found the guy hiding in the bushes? And we want Nev to be more than passive. We want her to get the last laugh. We want her to do something. That said, did you want her to put on the ghost face outfit and stab them with... I think it was the umbrella more than anything it was sticking in with the umbrella that really felt like this was your plan <laughs> yeah but it was very typical of horror movies the lone female survivor oh yeah but she's not lone she's yeah. also got gail and she's got randy okay. who's never been happier to be a virgin the one who is left standing and least injured takes care of the threat and then everyone else wakes up just in time to congratulate her when the cops show up it's a movie at this point we're in a movie they're acknowledging this is all farce and silly and all plausibility has gone left the, the building a long time ago and uh, it's a happy ending you know they, they give us a complete happy ending unlike a lot of horror movies where I feel like yes there's someone left standing but it's not necessarily a happy moment here I feel like oh we're all still here and the good people are still around even Dewey comes back from the dead yeah, and you kind of like that. I mean, again, I like Dewey. I was glad to see him live, which is, uh, we, we see this cliche in how many movies now, Stuart, where they're dead and no, they're back alive. And a couple that we'll even be talking about on our current donation series of Jaws, which yeah, we'll true. tell you how to donate for in a couple of minutes. But yeah, I liked seeing Dewey come back at the end. So I guess this leaves Marjorie Stewart. Do you recommend Scream? Marjorie. <sighs> Here's the thing. I really didn't think this movie was that enjoyable. I love my horror movies. I didn't think that was all this great. I think it's it's a period piece for the 90s. It's a 90s horror movie when they're trying to rebuild the horror genre because, let's face it, it had gone in the crapper. We were getting utter crap. Halloween 6. This is better than that. You got to admit, this is better than Halloween 6. Yeah, it was bad. I'm not going to lie. But that's the one I chose to go see in the theater. I had no connection with any of these people. I didn't watch the TV shows they were on, which I think was part of the appeal and why it was so popular. It was a very now movie, is the thing. These people were hot at the time. They're the hot up-and-coming actors. I'm sure that they thought that they were going to be the Tom Cruises of this generation and everything. That being said, I think that there's some really great things done by Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, but I don't think as a whole the movie... I can't recommend it. I don't think it was a good movie. I think it's interesting. I think that it could have been great had they taken some other different turns. 
And I think it was a very tame horror movie compared to the slasher genre that I have grown up with and that the torture porn genre that now is big or was big shortly after this. I just, I don't think it was a good movie, but from a film study into the horror genre, you could pick up some statements. Stewart had some really great points on this movie about how things were well done and certain little bits they did about the pacing. And I respect that 100% and I'm not denying that those parts weren't good. I just think as a whole, the movie, I, I can't recommend it. And just as a side note, can I both applaud Marjorie and sympathize with her for being in this role as the person <laughs> who did not uh, recommend the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre for much <laughs> the same reasons? I can appreciate it, but I don't like it. Yeah. Stuart. I agree with you, Marjorie. It helps if you can identify with the pop culture of the 90s. If you felt really a part of that, if that was your youth, then you're going to really connect with Scream. It is for that demographic. It isn't for me. That said, it's very clever. I really admire what Williamson did with the genre. It is a similar feat to what Tarantino did with exploitation and crime movies. You know, he takes these things and make them better than they actually are. In a lot of cases, these horror movies, these slasher movies, when we go back, we discover unpleasantly that they're actually shit. Well, here he takes the shit, picks out the best kernels, and puts together, and if not makes art, at least makes a fun time. It's hard for me to imagine someone that appreciates the genre not having at least some fun with Scream. You've got to see it. It's a strong recommend for me. And I highly, highly recommend Scream. It's just such fun. It's not necessarily scary, though it is intense. And I know Marjorie said it seemed tame. I heard in the director's commentary, the MPAA was really hard on this film because of intensity more than anything. And they made them cut out what little gore was there because the whole movie was so intense, especially the Drew Barrymore scene. I find that when this movie starts, it starts so intense, but it's also funny and it's not in a way that undermines the suspense. And again, watching it for the very first time if you've listened to this podcast and you never saw this movie we have truly spoiled it for you because i love about the scream series we're going to see this again and again they're all whodunits and i love the mystery and the red herrings and the misdirects loved it it was so much fun for me the first time and it's a movie that on repeated watchings has gotten better for me because i see more and more i've seen this movie probably close to a dozen times and seeing it for this podcast I still saw things that I hadn't seen before and having this conversation things clicked for me that had never clicked before it is a really well done movie I gotta credit Williamson more than Craven because I'd seen what Craven had been doing around this time I think that giving Craven a great script gave Craven a chance to shine too I say this is Craven's best movie ever as you said Stuart it was rare for horror movies to make you know this made over a hundred million in theaters and for better or worse it changed horror for at least a decade. I think you said that Black Christmas was the death of the postmodern horror. I'll try to make that case. Yeah, I do feel like it's where Scream ended. This is where it began, and all the work and the irony that was used for the next decade pretty much wrapped up around the remake of Black Christmas. Yeah, sure. I'll go with that theory. 
And what happened from here, Kevin Williamson became a phenom. He got the TV show Dawson's Creek, which is just like Scream without the killing. Just with the... <laughs> Marjorie, you'll love it. I've never seen an episode of Dawson's Creek at all. I haven't either, and I'm not going to. No. I, I will say I watched the full first season because it was on after Buffy, and then I just couldn't take any more of it. But because I liked Scream and because I liked Buffy and it was on after Buffy, I watched it. And yes... Every character talks just like the teenagers in this film talks, only it's just your 90210 melodrama instead of murders. Yeah, Williamson feels like a flash in the pan. Tarantino has lasted, but Williamson's legacy, not as strong. Dawson Creek did run for several years, but he dropped out of it. He let it go second season. There, When he came out of the closet, he also removed himself from the show because there was a gay character on the show. There were some anti-gay people protesting and things. So he stepped away from Dawson after a year and a half. Well, he also, I think, and we'll talk about it as we go on, I believe he steps away from Scream. I don't think he is the credited screenwriter on Scream 3, and I'm not sure if he's coming back on Scream 4. Again, like the cast, Williamson had gotten so big by Scream 3, he didn't need it anymore. Mm. And then by Scream 4, suddenly he needed it again, ah. which is why we're all here talking about it today. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the whole journey. He influenced horror. God knows there were the ripoffs, too. Those were just the ones he did. But mm -hmm. it felt like, again, from Black Christmas, and he also did Halloween H2O, as we mentioned, and all of these movies, it just seemed like he single-handedly with his script, his first script that he was just trying to sell, changed the face of horror for over a decade. Okay, but wait a second. While Black Christmas was not a great movie, the fact that it had mutants and inbred people as the killers made it scary and suspenseful. And you can hear our review of it in the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com, where you can also find our review of other horror films, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street series. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to take a listen to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I enjoyed that one. I'm sorry, Wes. I'm sorry. I can't say it enough. I would say I'm sorry. It's not that I didn't mean what I said on that podcast, but Scream makes up for a lot of it. Everything you were trying to do with New Nightmare, you successfully do here. I'm always willing to forgive and I'm always willing to admit when I'm wrong when the people show me up. We also reviewed Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, of course, all of these movies and some non-horror films. Our Marvel Misfits retrospective series we just finished with Howard the Duck of Man-Thing and Kick-Ass, the Philip K. Dick retrospective series for the Last Month's Adjustment Bureau. All of these and more can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com and you can have even more Now Playing while we go through the Scream retrospective ending with the brand new Scream 4. If you want even more movie reviews, Stuart, Brock, and I are taken to the high seas and reviewing Jaws, which you can listen to. It, we are doing it as our thank you to listeners who are supporting our show by donating $10 or more using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Just like we did Child's Play last October, similar thought. We we're going to try it again in the spring, see how we go. We got a lot of requests for Jaws movie I personally love. I'll go ahead and say that right now. What way to kick off summer and prepare to go to the beach? It's starting to feel that time of year. Then going back to the beach and seeing the movie that really created the summer movie, Jaws. I hope you guys join me. I also hope that if you hit the extra special mark, because there is, we're not telling them what the number is, right, Arnie? 
You don't know how much you have to donate, but it's kind of like, I know who killed me last time. If you donate a certain amount, and we're not going to tell you what, we want you to give what you feel this show has is worth. You know, we do this every week, giving you a show for free. We just ask that you donate what you feel you should. And if it is a certain number, then Stuart, Marjorie, and I are also going into the closet, I guess? Well, we're going into the light. Yeah, we're going <laughs> into the light. We're not all going into the closet. It's not seven minutes ahead. <laughs> Can you go back in after you've come out? <laughs> we'll have to ask Kevin Williamson. <laughs> oh my god, let's just say the word. Poltergeist! We're doing Poltergeist, my very favorite movie from childhood, my favorite scary movie when I was eight years old. We're not doing just Poltergeist, we're doing two, we're doing three, we're doing them all. I do hope that if you like our show and you can, you have the means to support us, tax season's coming up, maybe you're getting a refund, think about us. <laughs> we can keep entertaining you with Jaws and Poltergeist all spring long. And again, as we always say, now playing will always be free. We do these extra shows just as a way to thank those who support us and help us pay for our bandwidth and our 3D movie tickets and our movie rental fees. Because sometimes some of these movies are a little harder to find. and We actually have to physically go to a brick and mortar. And we appreciate those of you who donate so much that this is our thank you. It's our PBS tote bag. It's a series of podcasts and last time so many of you went above and beyond for I Know Who Killed Me. This time we're giving you three extras instead of one and thank you for your support if I may Bartles and James it up in here. So Stuart, Marjorie, thank you for screaming with me. Thank you. Thanks. I always knew you were a screamer. <laughs> you knew I was too. <laughs> Depends on which one of you you think I was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued next week with Scream 2. sequel discussion to be continued. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Scream Retrospective Series. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> you can listen to other episodes in this series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. If you like scary movies, then head to NowPlayingPodcast.com where you can find our retrospective reviews of other horror series, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Saw, and many others. More blood, more gore. Carnage, candy. Your core audience just expects it. As well as individual movie reviews of The Human Centipede and others. Stop it, Billy, would you, right? I can't take any more. And you're going to need a bigger iPod. Because those of you who donate $10 or more to Now Playing will get, as our thank you, the entire Jaws retrospective series. Smart twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did you? And if the donation is high enough, you'll also get our Poltergeist retrospective series. It's all a movie. It's all one great big movie. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So where are you? I'm going to take the party out. These special thank you podcasts are only available to those who donate $10 or more by May 30th, 2011. So donate now. Don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. And while at nowplayingpodcast.com, 
Be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. See, we're about love, respect, and responsibility. Harmonica style is okay, okay right? Man. Oh, yeah. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, have I covered everything? Are there any questions, any comments? You know what, though? Who gives a flying fuck anyway? Now Playing's Scream Retrospective series is edited by Arnie and Jay. Not much of a story here, just a bunch of kids cutting it loose. The now playing Scream opening credits are performed by Jen and Arnie. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Now playing is not affiliated with Dimension Films. The Scream films and all the Scream universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Dimension Films, and no infringement is intended. My lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Now you gotta die. Those are the rules. This is Gale Weathers signing off. Now if you'll excuse me, I have some oozing to do. No, she's warm. She kind of reminds me a little bit of Jennifer Gardner, a little less athletic version of her. Oh, really? Because I think Jennifer Gardner is like America's sweetheart and she's likable and she's very next door. Like she could live next door to you and be very believable as your neighbor because she's not overly pretty or anything. Not that I'm saying Deb Campbell's pretty or anything, but... (laughs) God forbid. (laughs) You know what I mean. Now, are you going to also apologize to Miss Langenkamp? <laughs> I don't know. Is she going to be in Scream 2 and give a good performance? I, I, I... <laughs> And honestly, the rest never really went on to do much. So then again, Rose McGowan is still stalking B-movies uh, from time <laughs> to time. I think she married Robert Rodriguez, or at least destroyed his own marriage. <laughs> Wasn't she married to Marilyn Manson? Yeah. What's funny is we've watched two Rose McGowan movies in the past 24 hours. I woke up and Marjorie was watching Encino Man. She's not in that. Yes, she is. She is? Who is she? Nora. Who's Nora? I don't fucking know. You watch Encino Man, not me. (laughs) (laughs) She did two Pauly Shore movies. She was also in Biodome. Bad Girls, Mad Love, Boys on the Side. I actually saw them all. (laughs) Oh, wow. Why did you see these movies and I didn't? And I'm the girl. It doesn't have a good killer name. I mean, he's referred to as Ghostface. Isn't that a rapper? Well, actually, it is after this, I okay. do believe. I think he Ghost, took it from... Ghostface Killer. Okay. Yeah. Is, he's Wu-Tang. <laughs> oh, wow. It, is Wu-Tang post or pre-Scream? Um, I think he came into Wu-Tang afterwards. It is definitely pre-Scream, but I think Ghostface Killer, uh, you know, they, they, they were kind of like this CNC Music Factory. Uh, they just have people coming in and out all the time. CSC Music Factory is your go-to reference yeah, for a I, change-up. <laughs> How about, like, Menudo? Well, you know, in that second CNC album, it was different people. They had a second album? <laughs> Artie owns it, I'm quite sure. I do not. I, I, I do not. I only own Gonna Make You Sweat. Oh, yeah. That makes it all better. Yeah. <laughs> What were we talking about? Uh, Ghostface Killer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, please. it's Killer. Killer. Yeah. You. Well, the rapper is not this guy. Mm-hmm. I kind of like how I went scream. It's like I'm in an acting class. Scream. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's very Shatner of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I live with a movie phone guy, you know. 